0: When we see it, what is often called a challenging behavior or a problematic behavior, we do not use those terms. We call these things responsive behaviors. We assume that human behavior is not random. A person with dementia is not crazy. They do not have a psychiatric illness. A person with dementia is a normal person who has some cognitive disabilities.
1: There's no way around it. Caring for a loved one with dementia is not for the faint of heart. We don't know what we don't know, and often families focus so much on the person with dementia that they forget to keep their eyes on the family member managing care, which can be catastrophic.
0: In this podcast, we'll help you become more proactive and remind you to focus on yourself. We will share challenges and wins and guidance from professionals at every step in the journey of caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's and other dementias. Welcome to the Eye on a Caregiver podcast.
1: Our guest today is Dr. Cameron Camp, founder of Center for Applied Research in Dementia. Dr. Camp is a gerontologist and researcher who focuses on non-pharmacological Montessori-based approaches to help people with dementia live purposeful lives. Many call him the father of Montessori for dementia. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Camp.
0: Michelle, thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: So, Dr. Camp, can you talk about how you discovered that Montessori methods were effective in helping people with dementia?
0: Certainly. I uh, am a, a gerontologist My specialization uh, is in cognitive aging. So uh, I was always studying memory and the way aging affects that learning, that sort of thing. And I was beginning to do work with persons with dementia at the same time that uh, my son began attending a Montessori school. And I was having challenges Teaching persons with dementia to remember things, using the same approaches that I worked with uh, adults, older adults who didn't have dementia, you know, the Dale Carnegie how to remember names in people. and people, it just wasn't working. It was just total failure. And when I walked into that Montessori classroom and saw all of those teaching aids and the way people learned by doing and uh, using muscle memory and procedures. The stars lined up, and uh, you know it was like the heavens opened. I brought in a friend of mine who was a, a neuropsychologist to the classroom, and I said, "Is this the way forward?" And he looked around and said, "This is it. This is the way forward." And then he enrolled his kids in uh, the school also. So um, I have a daughter who's uh, learning disabled, uh, and uh, she's going to be uh, having a, a milestone. Uh, Birthday 50 uh, next month. Uh, she's uh, she lives with us has a job, and so when it comes to working with persons with cognitive impairment, uh, I always say my wife and I are lifers uh, when it comes to caregiving. And uh, you know how do you how do you enable this person to use the dryer? Uh, and so you put uh, fingernail polish on the needle of the dryer and fingernail polish at the place where they should line it up for the right uh, temperature and the right uh, time. And then they don't have to understand temperature and time. They just do a match. And so uh, uh, we apply these things on a, on a daily basis. So that's sort of like the initial background. And the further we've gotten into understanding Maria Montessori's approach, that the further we've begun to understand that this is not just about teaching uh, it's about a way of living. Uh, the fundamental values of the Montessori approach are respect and dignity, equality, and also trust. So sometimes people ask us, "Well, Montessori does does that mean you're treating persons with dementia like they were children?" And, and we say, "No, you know, Ma- Montessori didn't treat children like children. She treated them like persons." And she wanted children to be able to have a a good life. She worked with kids in poverty, and she wanted them to be able to have a a place in the sun, uh, to be able to have a chance to contribute to uh, their communities and to have a, a purpose in life. And so this is about enabling people to live well and you know, I know people with dementia who live well and people with dementia who don't. I know people without dementia who live well and people without dementia who don't. And so this is about enabling people to, to live their life to the fullest, to be as independent as possible in spite of any deficits in cognition or any challenges they might have. We view dementia as, uh, as a disability And we take a rehabilitation approach to dementia, not a medical approach. And when you do that, it changes everything. It changes our um, uh, responsibilities, our goals. If you're driving down the street and you see a ramp going from the sidewalk over the steps up to the door of a house, you don't think anything of it. You say, well, yeah, someone with a wheelchair lives there. This lets them independently get into their house. And so what we have to be able to do is to create cognitive ramps for persons with dementia. We don't cure it, but we let them circumvent the deficits to live a more normal life. So for example, uh, we're very big on the use of uh, name tags, especially in uh, long-term care. But even when uh, you have like a reunion, or a family gathering when people come to your house, uh, you know. Many times I hear a family member say, "Well, they don't know me anymore. They called me by my mother's name, my my brother's name, whatever." And what we say is, th- "They know you. They recognize you. They're just having trouble remembering your name." And there's a big difference. You know, if you've ever been to a reunion or a party and someone walks up to you and starts calling you by name and talking to you, and you know you know them, and you cannot, for the life of you, remember their name, this is a human thing, okay? And so, by wearing a name tag, we let people circumvent that naming deficit. And we tell staff in long-term care, if you call a resident in memory care by name and they can't name you, you're putting them in the same situation that you are at a party like that. And so having a name that people can actually read with like very large letters is a cognitive ramp. And when the grandchildren come over, if they can wear a a name tag, they love that kind of stuff, but allows the person with dementia to call people by name. We always say it's a little thing, that's a big thing. And it, it has an impact. So this is, this is the difference between a medicalized approach and, and a, uh, a rehabilitation approach. My mother-in-law uh, uh, had Alzheimer's disease and she came to our house one summer. Uh, she was taken by my brother-in-law. He, she was living with his family and he came to Cleveland to do an internship that summer at the Cleveland Clinic. So he goes to the clinic And after 30 minutes, my mother-in-law goes to my wife, her daughter, and says, you know, where's my son? So my wife said, he's at the Cleveland Clinic. He'll be back at 5.30. And so this was information that uh, reassured her. This is the information she was looking for. But 20 minutes later, she says, where's my son? Okay. Now a standard approach would be, well, be patient and just answer him. But you know, my wife Montessori teacher she says, "Let's let's do something so you'll be able to know this." So she writes down, you know, her son's name on a piece of paper. Uh, he w- is at the Cleveland Clinic. He'll be back at five thirty. The information that reassures her, and she puts this on this external aid. You know, if a person cannot retain information internally, then we have to store it externally, and and also. We have to then teach a procedure to enable persons uh, with memory impairment to be able to get the information from the external source. It's not enough to create a sign or a piece of paper because uh, that's not enough. And so what my wife did was she went with her mom and she taped this onto the countertop in the kitchen. Because if you don't keep it in one location and taped down, You'll be put in a safe place that no one can find. Uh, We've made all the mistakes already. Maria Montessori said, I welcome my mistakes. Uh, It's because we learn from our mistakes much more than our successes. Success is a terrible teacher. It only teaches us one thing. And if the world changes, we're in bad shape. So she taped it down because persons with dementia can learn locations. Uh, There's a real easy test for that. If... work in an adult day center or in a memory care neighborhood, put somebody else in the chair that the client or the resident usually sits in for lunch and see what happens. And it's not pretty. (laughs) Uh, They'll say, that's my chair, get out of there. And they learn this after they got the diagnosis of dementia. Persons with dementia are learning all the time. We just haven't been trained to look for it, to see it to use it. And the areas of the brain that are involved with this are the uh, areas of the brain and the learning systems that occur early in life. So this is where a Montessori approach is very useful. These are relatively unconscious, automatic, effortless learning systems. And so uh, uh, they tape it down. And my wife asks her mom to read the, uh, the message out loud. The ability to read hangs in there a long time. I see people who have zero mental status e- exam scores or who cannot speak, who can read out loud. Okay. It's an automatic, unconscious, effortless habit. And so uh, uh, her mom read it out loud. The information was the right information. How do we know if it works? They tell us if it's the right information on the external aid, reassures her, 20 minutes later, where's my son? And my wife now says, I think there's a message about that, let's go see. So she doesn't tell her the information because we know that system's not working. But she gives her practice walking to this location. And she says, what does this say? She doesn't read it for her mother. She has the mother read it out loud for herself. And afterwards, uh, the mom finishes reading. And my wife says, that's right. Whenever you want to know about your son, you can just come here. An hour later, where's my son? You know, there's a message about that. To learn a procedure, it helps to practice the procedure in the same way. Okay? Okay. And so, I, and if you need to, you write down a script so you could don't have to remember the words. You say the same words every time. Uh, a couple of hours later, where's my son? And after that, for the rest of the day, when her anxiety would rise, my mother-in-law would walk towards the uh, the message. Yep, and she may not have been able to say why she's walking there, and it doesn't matter. Unconscious automatic effortless learning systems she gets there her eyes look at the location where the uh, where the message is the habit she reads the message reduces her anxiety and this procedure and location become associated with anxiety reduction this is classical conditioning another memory system you know learning system that's uh, that's still available to persons uh, with dementia far into the course of uh, It's progression. And so what happened was that my wife was no longer needed. She had enabled her mother to reduce her own anxiety. And that freed the mom from having to carry that around all the time and allowed her mom to focus on other things, other activities. And it's relatively straightforward. You know, this is not a costly procedure. It's a piece of paper and a different way of thinking. And so this is what we do. All right? We try to show people how to enable persons with dementia to circumvent their deficits, how to create environments, physical and social, that support a person with the dementia. Um, we talk about giving people meaningful roles. So for example, in the home, One thing that's often a challenge is if you're starting to cook a meal, it's like, all right, well, where's my mom? Where's my dad? All right. So one thing we would recommend is that you have, uh, if the person can uh, read and you want it to be big print, thick. Okay. How do we know it's the right print and the right size if they can read it? They tell us. And so you can get like large print stories, readers digest Uh, local newspapers often have large print, and you ask the person with dementia to read to you while you're cooking, while you're preparing the meal. And so that gives them a social role. You know where they are. That's very different than than having to stop periodically to go and, and, and try to prevent something from happening. But it all starts with understanding that the person with dementia can read.
1: I find it so interesting because you know what we what we say over and over again is you don't know what you don't know. And and when my father was um, in in kind of late the later stages of dementia, I used to take him to an adult day every every day. At this point, he didn't know I was his daughter. He didn't know my name. He didn't remember that I was his daughter. And um, I didn't grow up. My children were not part of a Montessori program, so I didn't really grow up with that um, approach. Um, but I learned from looking at my dad, like we would leave his his, play, his home and we would drive on our way to the adult day and he would read the street sign every single time. And he would comment about, because it was yes. named after someone, right? So he would, he would read the street sign. Mm-hmm. And I remember I would say to my, I call my brother and I'm like, I, Alzheimer's is so fascinating. Like he doesn't know who I am, but he remembers that he doesn't like the person that the road is named after. Because he reads the name, the name yes. and then he says, oh, he was such a dud every day, you know. So mm-hmm. when you think about it that way and you think about what you're talking about, cognitive ramps, you know, I, I can see so many things we could have done differently um, and kind of taken advantage of my dad's um you know, remembering that, yes, he could read, yes, like location. That's so important because, you know, we could have done that a lot. I i wonder, and there may not be an answer to this, but I wonder one of the things my dad did was he was an exit seeker. So every day he would wake up, he would put like a pair of pants or a shirt over his arm, take it out of the closet, put it, and he said he was he was going north. That's all he would say. He couldn't tell you what north meant, what he hoped to accomplish when he went north. He just wanted to go outside and head north, right? So when you look at your type of approach, are there things that, you, that a family can do when someone's an exit seeker and they just want to get out of the house?
0: Sure. So uh, we have a way of thinking, and uh, it's, it's based on the work of Yiska Cohen-Mansfield. I always give her credit. But when we see it, what is often called a challenging behavior or a problematic behavior, we do not use those terms. We call these things responsive behaviors. We assume that human behavior is not random. A person with dementia is not crazy. They do not have a psychiatric illness. A person with dementia is a normal person who has some cognitive disabilities. And so whenever we see uh, This kind of behavior its called a responsive behavior because we assume it's in response to an unmet human need. And so it's our job to try to be detectives and to try to understand the underlying cause of the uh, of the responsive behavior. You can try to treat the symptoms. You can try to redirect. You can try to distract. But that's not addressing the cause. And you're going to have to keep distracting and redirecting over and over and over again. So, um, you know, one of the th- things, we actually have like a, a, a series of, uh, of questions a uh, procedure uh, that people can use to try to understand why something is happening. Uh, we have a book called uh, Hiding the Stranger in the Mirror, uh, which is designed for family caregivers to to learn how to think like this, it's, we call it a detective manual. Uh, And so the first question would be, you know, why is this happening? Whenever we encounter responsive behavior, we have to ask, why is this happening? And the answer can never be because they have dementia. Think about it. Why is this happening? Because they have dementia. How do we know they have dementia? Because this is happening.
1: Absolutely. That doesn't
0: help anybody it doesn't explain anything. It, it leaves you, you know, trapped. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the first things we look at is like, who is this person? You know, what in their background in this case did North represent? And they may not be able to communicate it now, but is there someone who would have known about this in the past? You know, this is buried, this is coming back from their personal history. So what is associated with their with North in this person's personal history. You know, Maya Angelou said, I will forget what you uh, say, I'll forget what you do, I'll never forget how you make me feel. And so you're talking about reading the road signs and not liking that person. So this this is an example of that. Again, these are human things. This is not dementia specific, but it's 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 something that's still available to persons with dementia. And so, you know, what is associated in this case with North? What does that mean? And again, people may not be able to communicate uh, as directly uh, 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 in the past. But you know, one thing would be to to, to uh, ask this question, and this is something again we aren't trained to do. When is the responsive behavior mm-hmm. not happening? When are they not wanting to go north? What's happening then? And if if there's Instances during the day when a responsive behavior is not happening, that's a clue. And usually it's when they're engaged in something that's purposeful or meaningful and their attention is focused. You know, the whole Montessori approach uh, uh, in education is about enabling people to focus their attention. It's sort of like mindfulness seen in two and a half year olds, uh, but also we see mindfulness in people, you know college students, people with and without dementia who are older. And so what's, what's going on when it's not happening? And then is there a way to provide that kind of experience just before uh, the person would normally show the, uh, the responsive behavior? You know, if it's time-specific, then the idea is to find something that would be engaging to the person before that time kicks in. Okay, so if it happens like in the morning, is there a morning routine uh, where uh, you, at, you come and say, oh, listen, it's morning and we need you to help us with fill in the blank. Would you please do that? Because, you know, you're the expert on this. It, even something as simple as waking somebody up, uh, you know, many times it's like, please get out of bed, please get out of bed. Uh, and what we tell, you know, family members or or staff members in memory care neighborhoods is when you come in, you say, would you please show me how you like your bed made? And it gives them the opportunity to be the expert, to show you, you know, it's like sheet tucked in, sheet tucked out. There's two schools of thought with that, see. And so when they show you how they like the bed made, uh, how they like to take a shower, Feet first, hair first, hair last, shampoo first, shampoo last. There are different schools of thought. We ask them to show us, to teach us how they like to go to bed, how they like to get up, how they like to make the the bed. And what's really interesting is to show you how to make the bed, they have to get out of bed. But it's not because you've begged them or you tried to, you know, do whatever. It's because getting out of bed has a purpose. And if you come to someone in the morning and say, we need your help with this, it's about giving purpose. And so uh, I remember talking with a a caregiver and uh, she had a a husband taking care of him at home, early onset uh, dementia. And she said to me, uh, you know, I, I put up all these signs, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And this you know, morning he went around and, and, and walked around the neighborhood and picked up everybody's newspaper and brought them back. What am I supposed to do? And my suggestion was, well, you know, right now you're playing whack-a-mole. You know, you're trying to find all the things, you know, waiting for the next shoe to fall to put up another sign. What if you had signs which directed him to things to do and that he could do and that perhaps he had the materials and the instructions to do? You know, because right now you're on an infinite loop yeah. and you're asking this person with cognitive deficits to figure out what to do because you've already told him what not to do. Perhaps there's a better way. Perhaps these external aids can guide Uh, to things that uh, uh, are appropriate, are are engaging. And the other thing is that we have to learn to focus on the strengths that people still have, on the capacities they have. You know, neuropsychological assessment, clinical assessment is designed to make you fail. I mean, think about it. It's the failure that gives you a diagnosis. It's the failure that gives you the stage. People hate to receive them. People hate to give them, but it's a, it's it's an assembly line. You come in, you take the test. They come out in bad you know bad mood. And they say, "Okay, here's what you have." Next, there has to be a different way. So, one thing we've created is a is a person-centered Montessori ability system uh, that uh, we've just uh, recently developed to enable us to determine what strengths an individual has. And the minimal amount of assistance they need to succeed at things. You know, if you've ever seen a parent that does everything for a child, now how does that usually work out? Not well. It's very easy to teach dependence, and you can do it out of love, but it doesn't turn out well. It's very easy to teach dependence in a person with dementia and you can do it out of love. And they can learn to believe that they don't have competency, that they can't make choices, that it's best just to go with the flow. Uh, and so again, you know, for Montessori, it was about, all about how to enable persons to do things independently. My, my granddaughter, when she was like two, uh, uh, was, you know, waiting to have her coat put on. And so my wife, the Montessori teacher says, would you like to put on the coat for yourself? She goes, yes. So my wife did what she does in a Montessori school. She laid the coat out backward. My granddaughter puts her arms in, lifts up her arms and it slides on and she can do it for herself. And she was so proud of that. She took it off and put it on, took it off and put it on because she... She cherished the capacity to do things for herself. So once again, this is about what abilities does a person have? How can we create environments, physical and social, to enable them to use the abilities they have to be as independent as possible, to be able to take care of themselves and their environment, and also to do things for other people. to have a role in a family. Uh, So many people with dementia uh, that we work with say, we want to help those who are less capable. We wanna help those who are less fortunate than ourselves. Uh, We did a a project when uh, I was working uh, uh, in a continuing care retirement community. We had a woman with Huntington's disease. It's It's a condition that creates dementia, but the first thing it hits is the motor skills. And so she did not have very good fine motor skills. She was using a walker and she came up to us uh, and said, I'd like to help these people with Alzheimer's disease. I'd like to be able to run a reading and discussion group for them. So what we did was we create readers uh, for persons with dementia. Um, And uh, they're on things like uh, uh, the invention of the chocolate chip cookie, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, the, the development of self-opening cans, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so we put a page of uh, each of the readers onto a PowerPoint slide. So we had that many slides for the for the, for the book. And we s- hooked it up to a touchscreen computer and we hooked that up to a large screen TV. And this woman would gather like you know, eight people with uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, put them in a semicircle in front of the TV, touch the screen and say, okay, George, would you please read the first page out loud? And it was on this big screen, big letters, and he would read the first page. She touches the screen. Mary, would you please read the next page out loud? And then she'd lead, lead discussion. We only get to that place by asking, what abilities does this person have? What are their strengths? How can we modify the environment? How can we enable this person to circumvent their deficits uh, in order to have a meaningful role? And so it's it's a way of thinking. Uh, We always say we have to learn to think in new ways to look with new eyes. Um, There was a woman in in a nursing home with advanced dementia. And uh, she was from Ethiopia, and she only spoke a few words, and those were in Amharic, the native language of Ethiopia. After lunch, she would walk up and down the hall, uh, fiddling with her hands on her shirt and and muttering a couple of words. And uh, I asked the staff there, I said, what do you see? And, you know, they did the usual thing. You know, she's a wanderer. And then uh, I asked, what abilities is she demonstrating? well, she can use her hands, she can walk. All right, is there a task? Is there, an, is there an activity that she could do at that time that involves walking and using her hands and has a purpose and a social role? So they had a therapeutic pet, a dog. So after lunch, they would put the dog on a leash and they handed the lady the leash. And suddenly she's the dog walker. I mean, it's the same motor stuff, but it's a different role. And other people looked at her differently when she was walking a dog than when she was just walking up and down. And they would stop and talk to the dog and she would just smile at them. We need to learn a different approach. We need to learn to to look at what's there. We need to learn how to create environments that support a person's strengths. It's interesting. uh, Maria Montessori said, when the environment and the person match, when the environment supports capacity and gives people purpose, allows them to have purposeful activity, a thing comes into the world, a process, and she called it normalization, Normalization." When we're sick, we always say, I can't wait till I feel normal again. And it is our like mission to enable persons with dementia to live in normalizing environments. And when a person is engaged in meaningful activity and demonstrating capacity, what you see is a normal person. Uh, that's a very different uh, view than you know seeing people just sitting. But think about a drug that could eliminate the symptoms of depression with no side effects, unlike any drug advertised on TV. That's another story. And the catch is its effects and no toxic buildup, none of this, its effects last for one hour. It doesn't cure depression, but it eliminates the symptoms. How often would you give this pill to a person with depression? Duh, every hour. We have non-pharmacologic approaches to responsive behavior that work just like that pill. It involves engagement and meaningful activity.
1: Dose dependent. I love that. It makes me think so much about a time with my dad when he was, again, at adult day. And he didn't want, he would go, he would have so much fun when he was there. When I would pick him up, he was all smiles talking on the way home. He would walk into the home. He would look at my mom and he's like, I don't ever want to go back. They don't, no one talks to me. They don't feed me. I just sit by myself all day and I'm thinking, well, when dad, you were playing like hangman, and you, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, to myself, he was so engaged the whole time and I don't exactly, and I'll, I'll, I guess I'll never know why he kind of shut it off and Like had that thought process when he got home. But what I learned is that in the morning when I would go pick him up, if he didn't want to go, I would, I wouldn't just say you have to go, dad. I would be like, hey, dad, you know, the library needs to be reorganized. Is there any way you can help me? I'm going to reorganize the library. And he would perk up and he would be like, oh, yes, yes, let's go. And and I would call ahead and I would be like, is there any way, can you just take like a whole shelf of books off? Let's just put it, We'll we'll fix it when we get there. They were great sports about it. And we would get there and the library would be all disheveled. And my dad would spend hours like, and sometimes he was reading the titles of the books and almost alphabetizing them. And other times he was doing it by color or size of the book. It didn't matter. He felt like he had a job he felt like he had a purpose
0: a purpose and
1: um i think that Mm -hmm. we all need to to retrain our own minds you know as the caregivers we need to retrain our own minds and and really think this way it's just i i just it's mind-blowing and and i feel like you know uh, there's just we need it on so on so many levels and I know that, you know, you work a lot in long-term care facilities, in helping educate long-term care facilities where we work more with people who are at home, but there comes a point when families have to make a decision like we did with my dad. He was not safe any longer at home, so we need to make a decision to go um, to memory care. You have a, a wonderful resource that we're going to share with our community, but can you talk a little bit about the memory care quality checklist that you have?
0: Sure. Sure. Um, We work with memory care communities uh, to credential them as Montessori-inspired lifestyle communities. And these are places where persons in memory care create their own community, control their own lives. You know, we have a Montessori pledge that we ask staff to take. And the first line is, I will work to create the place where I would want to live. And this is what we have to create as an industry standard. Uh, Things like I will remember I am a guest in the home of my residents, and I will try to be a good guest. Uh, I will treat everyone I meet with respect, dignity, and equality. I will remember that I must earn the trust of my residents and they must learn to trust me. I will use Montessori principles in everything that I do Principles like go with their speed. Demonstrate what you want someone to do. All right. Don't just tell them. And the fewer words, the better the demonstration. Uh, breaking things down into steps. Giving choice. Things like, would you like to wear this blouse or this blouse? Not what would you like to wear today? And even if they can't talk, they can point. Okay. Okay. Um, Things like uh, give them something to hold, okay, to engage them. So, and then the last is I will treat I will treat people the way I wish to be treated. And so, um, uh, this is the the basis of how we uh, think about creating a, a community that's Montessori inspired. We talk about things like uh, features in the environment were created by or, or having input from the residents. Uh, so for instance, did they name the, 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 the special rooms? Okay. Um, do they have uh, doors that are clearly marked and identifiable as their room? Uh, as well as like, do you have the capacity to bring in your personal uh, furniture, your bedspread? Can you use your own deodorant, your own toothpaste? Okay, so uh, do they have a role in planning outings and events? We, we insist on resident committees that determine things like where do you want to go for outings? What do you want to do for, committee, for, uh, for entertainment? Um, what do you want to do to help others? What is your dream? Do you have a bucket list thing you'd like to do? I have pictures of a woman with dementia uh, uh, who uh, was in a wheelchair hang gliding over the Mediterranean because the wish committee put that together. And that was after she wrote a Harley Davidson the year before. (laughs) This is what happens when we think in, in different ways. Are we using name tags to enable Residents to not only call staff by name, but to call each other by name. Cognitive ramps. And do you have a system where people get their name tags in the day and they put them away at night? Do residents help with running their community? Do they help uh, set up for meals? Do they help uh, clean up after meals? How do you choose what you're going to have for, uh, for a meal? Can you see the food rather than just being told, You know, do you want a vegetarian burger or something else? It's like if you had a restaurant and you're with someone else and they order something and yours comes and you say, gosh, I wish I'd have ordered that. If I'd have only seen it. Right. And so can we set up a system where people can make meaningful choice? Are the activities purposeful? We, We say never give a person with dementia busy work. Okay. That's an insult. Uh, no, and don't give a person without dementia busy work. That's an insult. So, what is the purpose? If you're folding napkins, are they going to be used for dinner? Okay, and, you know, what is the purpose? If you're going to be, you know, uh, having paper and and marcelots, are you writing get well cards to uh, a person who's in the hospital, as opposed to coloring something from a children's coloring book? Okay, so what is the purpose? Uh, do they have choice in terms of what activities they have? Do uh, uh, they have a choice in how their day is constructed? No. Do they create their own rules for their community? Things like you know, we will not insult each other. Okay, I remember I was in one place and it said, Pants are not optional. (laughs) There's probably a history there.
1: Yeah, there's got to be a story behind that.
0: Even rules for visitors, like uh, uh, don't put your feet on our furniture. But when you see a rule like that, it says this place is our home.
1: And we take pride. We take pride in this place.
0: That's it. Yeah. Exactly. I That's love it. Exactly.
1: So if you, if you go and you certify, um, memory care facilities, is there some sort of national database or is there a database where I, as a family, I live in Maryland and I want to know, is there a certified, um, facility near me? Is there a place that people can go?
0: Yes. Uh, our website lists all of our, uh, uh, credentialed communities. We have uh, bronze, silver, and gold levels. Um, Uh, I know that Frontier Management has uh, a national group of memory cares and they've adopted uh, Montessori approach as their national standard for memory care. So uh, I've seen uh, uh, people uh, uh, in Frontier Management communities making beer. I
1: love it. uh,
0: Jams, uh, their own cheese, uh, skydiving. But this is what happens again when you when you start down a different path when when you start saying why not?
1: Why not right okay. I I, I yeah. know um, again, I keep speaking on personal stories, but um, my where the memory care where my dad lived was it was just wonderful and they did a very, very thorough intake on my dad where they, I mean, I feel like it was like 20 pages of information that we would give about all about his life. And I remember thinking, I don't really understand why, what's the value in this? Like, I didn't really know. Well, I mean, we did it all because in my mind, I was at the point where he doesn't know who we are. He does, you know, it was, it was so challenging for us. And I think our stress level was so high, but what happened is you started to see how they were using this information. My dad loved to play golf and, I'm just minding my business at work one day and I get a video and it's from memory care. And it's a picture of my dad and he's at the driving. They took him over to the driving range and, you know, he wasn't really verbal at that point. He wasn't speaking, but he had a beautiful golf swing. You know, he didn't, the muscle memory, you know, he just muscle memory. He had the joy and the joy in his face was phenomenal. You know, he loved to woodworking and he loved working with his hands and they would bring in, um, people that would, that he would have so much pride and show me the birdhouse that he made yesterday, you know, or yes. that it, and, you know, so when you, you had, you had, again, we didn't know what we didn't know. So we weren't asking these questions when we were looking at memory care. We were looking at a memory care that was convenient for us and, um, you know, financially, we could afford it. And that we were very our biggest concern with our dad was that he was an exit seeker. So we didn't we wanted him into in a memory care where he could come and go but never go anywhere, you know. And be safe. And be safe. And yeah. it was a wonderful facility that must have had like six different doors to the outside like there was a garden and there was like a, a seating area and there was a butterfly garden and you could come in and go out any door, but they never led anywhere. They all just kind of, he could just circle around.
0: It was was, designed for a person with memory impairment. Absolutely.
1: And he thrived there. I mean, he thrived there. He loved, he loved it. They loved him. He was always engaged. And, you know, when you're, I just say this as a caregiver, when you're deep in, th- in the throes of stress and anxiety and almost guilt sometimes over putting your loved one into a memory of care course. facility, there are facilities out there, and I just want everyone to hear this, that, you know, are fabulous, you know, and they will engage and they will give your loved one exactly what you reference, you know, respect, dignity, equality, and 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 trust and you know we hope that we can help educate you and we'll use your checklist as part of that education in helping families know what to look for right right
0: we always say it's just like riding a bike but only if you're allowed to get on the bike
1: only if you're allowed to get on the bike i love it i love it well, we are um, just about out of time, and I, I could talk about this forever. In fact, I might like to have you come back and talk a little bit more about this. It's, it's just fascinating. I think so many people need to hear this. But we also have with us today your director of marketing, Jamie Shelton. Um, Jamie, you were going to talk to us about um, the book that Dr. Camp referenced, Hiding the Stranger in the Mirror.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. Um, I just wanted everyone to know all the listeners are going to get a 20% discount on the book, Hiding the Stranger in the Mirror. It's written by Dr. Cameron Camp, um, and it's a detective's manual for solving problems associated with Alzheimer's disease and related disorders. So the discount code, which Michelle will share with everyone is EOTC, as in Eye on the Caregiver. And again, that's a 20% discount. The book, you'll see it on our website and Michelle will send uh, out a link, but it's basically a book of a bunch of stories that Dr. Camp has accumulated uh, during his career. It's excellent. I've read it. I'm probably going to read it again. And like he said, it's, it's really just teaching a different way of thinking of how to solve behaviors and there's a lot of humor in there too. So I would highly recommend it. And Michelle, thank you so much for having Dr. Camp and I. Dr. Camp, I don't know, do you have any other last-minute announcements?
0: Sure. So uh, if you go to our website, uh, CEN4ARD, that's Center for uh, Applied Research in dementia, CEN4ARD.com, we have lots of resources for caregivers. Uh, We have books on how to have a good visit. With a person uh, with uh, uh, memory impairment, a lot of free resources, uh, and then connections with other groups that we work with collaboratively uh, uh, as well. Uh, I think uh, Jamie's going to send information uh, also about uh, the uh, the culture change network of Georgia, uh, and they have a lot of videos for uh, in-home caregivers. Uh, uh, Something uh, that I've been involved with was uh, dealing with repetitive questioning. Uh, uh, People with dementia can learn how to see very quickly if a person with dementia can read. So we will provide uh, lots of resources to people. Just go to our website. And if you have any questions also, uh, we love to hear from people and to be a resource for you. Uh, This is where we keep learning also as well.
1: That's amazing. I, I can't thank you enough. I think uh, along with the show notes um, for this um, conversation here, we'll include a link to your web- website and we'll be putting up on our website your um, your memory care checklist, the information about your book. We'll, we're going to start tying our website back to yours too. So people can come either way, but this will all be available in the show notes after this um, podcast gets published. And again, um, my brother Sean wasn't able to join us today, but both of us just thank you immensely for taking the time out today and and this just super valuable conversation. Like I said, I, I could go on and on um, because there's so much that I wish I would have learned before I was knee deep in it with my dad. Um, and I, I think that what you're doing is amazing and I just can't wait to share it with our listeners. So thank you very much, Dr. Camp and Jamie, for your time and your expertise. Thank you, Michelle.
0: It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Michelle.
1: Thanks for listening. For more resources and information, visit winwardfoundation.org.